Finally, open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke. We are beginning a brand new series this morning. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. I'm really uh, excited about this. It's needed. I'm going to read the passage for today, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. We've been in this marvelous gospel uh, on and off for a little over a year and a half, and that is encouraging and exciting. Uh, But today we are going to begin a four-week series specifically on prayer. And so let me read the first four verses of chapter 11. We will pray one more time, and then we are going to dive in. Luke writing, Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who has indebted us and lead us not into temptation. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, our Father, once again, Father, we approach you this morning. Uh, We we open the word, this testimony uh, that Luke recorded that the Holy Spirit inspired him to orderly account for his good friend Theophilus, but also Holy Spirit for us here today. We read the words of Jesus when asked by a disciple, teach us to pray. And then when Jesus responded, he said, you pray like this. And so I pray, Father, I pray. Uh, We need your help. Father, we are weak when it comes to prayer. I am weak. And I know, I know in my heart of hearts that you really want to hear from us, that your door is always open. So, Father, hear my prayer this morning. Hear our prayer this morning. Speak to us. Welcome us home to talk to you. I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So you'll notice on the wall here, uh, I've titled this series, uh, The Disciples' Prayer. Right away, some of you are like, hey, hey, wait a second. I have a King James Bible or whatever Bible you have, and it says there, it says the Lord's Prayer. I understand that. And I've said this many times before, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, and I'm not smarter than the men who, that translated your Bible, but we're calling this the Disciples' Prayer, and I hope to show you over the next four weeks that that's really the way we should see it. After all, Jesus said, already I've I've read it for you, you pray this way. It's not necessarily the way he prayed. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the prayer, it's pretty clear that Jesus would not pray this way because Jesus would never ask his heavenly Father to forgive him. Amen? He was without sin. So it's it's, it's sometimes, I think, a minor point to people, and it's okay, by the way. If you want to call this the Lord's Prayer, God bless you. Keep on doing it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to reorient us a little bit this morning about the name that we're calling it and why we've put it on the, on the, on the wall and the title is The Disciples' Prayer. So before we, we dive in and unpack at least the first part of this message today, I want to answer the question that, which typically should be answered is, well, why? Like we've been going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, which is, which is great. We've been learning what the, 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 that Luke, the historian, wanted to say and did say to the people in that day what it means for us today. It's great, and we're going through it. Like, Glenn, you could get through these four verses today, 
and we could move on. And that's true. But the, the answer to that question is, and I mean, I could give you the spiritual answer because prayer is so important, right? And everyone would nod and go, that's good, that's great. But, but honestly, I, I feel as we were approaching this, and this started months and months ago as I expressed this to the elders of our church, I felt that we needed to pause and take more time on this. And the reason for that is, is because I, I read a lot, as many of you know. I read cultural things that are going on. I read a lot of commentaries, a lot of theological books. And I read a lot that comes my way from other pastors and, and uh, men that, that I really respect that are trying to encourage pastors. And, and there's a constant refrain that you constantly see. And if I go to conferences, we see it all the time. And the refrain is this. There is a desert of prayer in this day, in the church, in the church. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. We, we, you know, we're busy, right? Like, we're busy. We're busy people. Life is hard. There's a lot of things that we have to do, like feed the kids, get them packed up, feed ourselves, get out to work, go do all these things, try to have a little bit of fun on the way. We also live in an incredibly distracted culture, Right? Social media is awesome. Don't take me the wrong way. It's awesome, but boy, can it be distracting. What do you reach for first thing in the morning? Your Bible or your phone? Come on. Let's confess. I'm confessing. I have before. And so that, that's really one of the main reasons. One of the main reasons why we want to do this is that there's a dearth, there, there's a desert in our world today when it comes to prayer. I think the other reason is, is quite frankly, is that I, I, I think there's a dearth of teaching on it. I can't remember the last time we planted this church 10 years ago. I think I've preached on prayer maybe three or four times. I'm repenting right here publicly right now. I mean, we go through it. It comes up and we pray in missional community group. We pray on Sunday morning. And so I would also suggest to you there's, there, there's not a lot of teaching about it. And as I've been reflecting on it this week, and I go, I go to my own moments of, of praying and being quiet and trying to pray, I'm realizing I don't think I'm as good at this thing as I, A, should be or B, used to be. What's going on there? I'm a pastor. Anybody? It's a struggle, right? There's something going on there. And so it's a concern I hope you would agree. We, we have a prayer ministry in this church. You know that, right? We have a woman who's, we call her our prayer maven. She's right here over to my right. Sometimes you can actually hear her loudly during a sermon. Amen. So, Maureen. And you know what she does all week? She sits by her computer waiting for your prayer requests. No, she does because she texts me going, none yet. <laughs> like that's Monday, right? Okay, not quite, but she hardly gets any. Oh, it started out great when we initiated that back in September, right? It started out good. It always does. We have a prayer meeting on Monday nights. The same three or four people show up every week. Someone texted me this week and said, man, Mitchell Community Group was really, really good this week. Four men, five men, I think it was, actually prayed. That's why we're doing this. We live in this distracted culture. I think we all struggle with it. It's so needed. 
think as we'll discover as we go through this study, I hope we will discover as we go through this study, that Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't do one thing, anything, related to the expansion of the kingdom of God, related to his ministry, until he first went into a private place and talked to his Father, our Father, who is in heaven. So listen, as I said already, um, I think our distracted culture has made it difficult for us to be good at prayer, to be effective in prayer. And so I, I, I lean on that word made because, listen, it's not because it is difficult, is it? Really? But it's made difficult, not only by our distracted culture, but our personal distracted lives. So I think at this point in time, I'm taking responsibility, and I guess the key reason why we're doing this series is because there is a good lack of teaching on it. I confess that, and I look at our church, I look at what God is doing, which is awesome in many, many, many lives, and including opening the doors and more and more people coming, and yet the enemy is attacking us, attacking individuals in our church more than ever. We need to pray. We need to be a church of prayer. So that's why we're doing this. So as I've already given you, the title for our series is The Disciples' Prayer. I want to give you a little bit of an outline of how the next four weeks are going to go, and then we'll dive in, okay? Um, and and I, I, I warn you in advance, or I encourage you in advance, we might stretch it into five weeks, and here's why. So today, I mean, the title is of the series, The Disciples' Prayer. Today, we are going to be looking at Our Father on week one. Uh, the second week will be Kingdom Come. The third week will be Daily Bread. And the fourth week will be, look at that, Forgive and Deliver Us. So we'll see how it goes. We might break up those last two, okay? I think you're up for it. I can tell. Let me put the first two verses on screen again, and then we'll dive in. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 say this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he, Jesus, said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, we're also, during this series, going to bounce back and forth, not so much today, but certainly next week, between the record of this prayer in Luke and also in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's, um, most of you probably know Matthew's Lord's Prayer, Disciples' Prayer better than this one, because especially any of you who owned a King James Bible, amen? Hello, anybody? Um, Our Father who art in heaven, and on it goes, right? You would have memorized it from that translation, but also uh, from Matthew, because it's, it's more expanded. Luke is shorter. And so the reason why I'm titling today, Our Father is because that is exactly how Matthew records the beginning of the prayer, right? But it's interesting, Luke, so why? Why would Luke dive in that way? Well, we'll get into it a little bit more as we go through the series, but, but Luke's a Greek. Let's remember that, a Gentile pagan who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's writing with a certain purpose in mind, recording what he has been told by others Jesus said. And his relationship, I think he's trying to unpack here is your praying to God, my praying to God. So when you pray, just pray, Father. Matthew is a Jew, 
who is speaking to the people of Israel. And we'll see a little bit about that today. And so he's referring to God as our Father, which most Jewish people would go, yes, okay, I understand that terminology. Personal Father, Luke? That was strikingly new and different. So you'll remember last week we learned that Luke was introducing a brand new phase in, this, in the Gospel of Luke. Beginning right here in chapter 11, all the way to chapter 18, pretty much to the end of 18, primarily what Luke is going to record for us is Jesus teaching his disciples. His focus turns from the crowds and all the healings. There's a few that go on in these chapters, but it's primarily, come to my feet, like they did last week with Mary and Martha, right? Come to the feet of Jesus. Come to the Word of God. I, I need to teach this to you. I need to unpack this to you about the kingdom, about the gospel, about salvation, about why I'm going to die, be buried, and rise again on the third day, and then ascend back to the Father. I need to teach you all these things because one day, it's your job. And so it begins right here. It actually began last week. We saw that in, in the story of Mark, uh, Ma- Mary and Martha, pardon me. So, so Luke now introduces this chapter with the word now. That's an awesome Greek word. It's, 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 it's meant to be the segue moment, but it's also the idea there in his writing. He's a great writer, great journalist. His idea is to bring us into the present. Now. And it, this was written 2,000 years ago, right? So some of us are like, let's blow off the dust, right? No, we need to go into the present of this and see and hear what the disciples heard. So to see the image as if it were happening right now in front of us, the subject of this passage is given right away, obviously, right? Praying is the subject of this passage. And we're going to see it repeatedly again through the life of Jesus in his ministry in these next seven chapters, eight chapters. Everything he does before he does it, pray. I mean, how does this verse actually start, right? Now, Jesus was what? Praying in a certain place. It always begins with that, and it's always related to the expansion of the kingdom of God. Before more people come to faith in him, before he calls more people, before more miracles happen, he prays to his heavenly Father. So then as he finishes right here, as he finishes praying, one disciple asks him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so that was a, a very normal practice in Jewish life. Every rabbi would teach their disciples how to pray to God, to Yahweh. They were very careful about how they named God. They were very careful about that. And they would all be teaching that. And, and quite frankly, the way Jesus did this, however, for any of the Jews that were following Jesus at that time, and they were, you know, the religious types were following him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the ones who were trying to criticize him, the way he went about this, they'd be like, wait a second. <laughs> what are you doing? This is, this is really different. This is not the way that we would teach people to pray. You see, when they prayed to the Father in the Old Testament, there are 14 references, by the way, if you were to search your Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, of Father, the reference to God being Father. But in every case, it was in the collective sense or in the communal sense. So in other words, Father of Israel. The only time the word Father is used related to a person, like personally, is, and you all have heard this before, Father Abraham. Father Abraham is a terminology. But for the average Jew, the idea of personalizing this, me calling God in heaven, 
this holy and father? That was absolutely new. But there's more to this which is wonderful. Commentators and historians have often pointed out Jesus didn't use the word pater, the Greek word pater, in reference to our Heavenly Father. That's what's in the Greek in the translation that we're reading from. The word that actually came out of Jesus' mouth, right, when he was speaking and the disciples would have heard was the word. Anybody know it? You all know it. You've heard it before, right? Abba. The word that came out of Jesus' mouth that is translated pater in the Greek, where we get the word father, is the word Abba. That's the word that would have come out of Jesus' mouth. How about, have you ever heard a preacher or anyone else refer to our Heavenly Father as Daddy? Now, come on. Those of you raised on the King James Version, you probably thought that was disrespectful, right? Why? Why? Well, we're going to see that his name is sacred, his name is holy, but again, in those days, this is why Jesus' teaching on this was so shocking, because the understanding in Aramaic and in the Greek, the use of this word was like, it's my dad. This is a, this is a dad relationship. This is, a, this is you know, a passionate, loving relationship. This is not father who I'm afraid of. This is Abba. This is our dad. So if that is literally the word that Jesus used, and it is, and the Aramaic hearing person that day understood it to mean daddy, why would you and I have a problem with it? Honestly, I've been in prayer meetings with different people over the years, and someone has inevitably said, you know, Abba or daddy, and you can can almost hear a few people wincing, right? And it's like, now listen, I, I think all the time. (laughs) It could be a stretch, but... So, friends, this is how Jesus tells his disciples and us to pray, how to address our heavenly Father. If not in these words, then please hear me this when I say this. See your heavenly Father as your dad. Now, a couple of words we have to unpack this morning before I believe we're ever going to be able to pray the way that we should, even the way that we want. And the first word is Father. I had a loving father growing up. I know he loved me. When he died 14 years ago, I know he loved me. But my dad was a functional alcoholic. And so when my dad was sober, Glenn, you're awesome. You're going to make the NHL. Look at me, how tall I am. Didn't happen. He was so encouraging. He was my hero. He was strong. He drank every day. And when he'd had too much, which was mostly every day, the things he said hurt. They really hurt. I ended up in counseling at 40 years of age as a successful businessman who had hit the wall. Why? Still trying to get his approval and his acceptance. I don't put that on my dad. But some of you are here today, some people who are listening to this message have what I refer to oftentimes in discipling young men, the hurt of the father. 
I mean, in our culture today, listen, the role of father and fatherhood in our culture today has taken, is taking quite a beating, right? It is. I would venture to say there are many people in this room watching online, and you're just hearing the word father, and it's, it's hard. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, and I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. I don't know all of your stories, but father is pretty, pretty hard for some people. More and more in our, in our day and age. How many, what's the percentage of divorce in our culture? 55, 58% after whatever number of years? There's a problem, clearly, whether due to very poor examples of fathers, absentee fathers due to marriage breakdowns, abusive, angry, distant, unloving fathers, many people, and possibly especially women, come on, have a problem with the word. And so, so you're going you're gonna to get on your knees or you're going to close your eyes in the morning and rather than grab your iPhone, you're going to open your Bible and go, Father, Abba, Daddy. Oh, there's a hurdle, isn't there? Let's just be honest about it. There's a hurdle. And, and we really need to understand that hurdle. On the male side of things, and this is, trust me when I say this, is not in defense whatsoever of brutal, abusive men. Not at all. Men who have abdicated the role of father. But the problem today is many young men in our culture today, I disciple them. I spend time with them. So do many of you in our church. So do many women, for that matter. There's no, there are almost no role models. They don't know where to look. They didn't have a father, or the father they had created issues and problems and hurts. And so add to that the fact that many, many men, most men, I would say, in this day and age, between the age of 20 and 40 years of age, and actually, due to the impact of, please hear my words carefully, radical feminism, have no idea how to be a man. It's confusing. Ask a 25, 28, 30-year-old man, honestly, how he's supposed to behave. <laughs> it's not funny, I know. And then you add ideas like the American Psychological Association just coming out and calling masculinity, the masculinity that we've been raised to understand is good, and they've called it toxic. If you're a young man, like, what do you do? So again, not taking anything away from the fact that many young men need to grow up and be real men. But there's that, isn't there? So the word father itself can be a problem, no doubt. But there's another word, that we must learn about and unpack today if we're going to effectively pray to our Father. And this word, I'm almost reticent to put this word out there this morning. I don't really, trust me, I'm not afraid. Okay, sometimes I am afraid. Uh, but I'm going to talk about it. I want to just give you a little story illustration first that will highlight it. About a year and a half ago, I was invited to speak at Quest University uh, by the professor of the religion and philosophy class. And when invited to that class, he said, I want you to come and I'm going to give you 30 minutes to answer this question. Why should I believe in God? 30 minutes. <laughs> How simple is that, right? And then I want to open it up to a Q&A. And I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. Thank you. I'll do it. The day before, I'm like, I don't even know how to prepare for this. Like, what am I going to say? 
well, I, I'm a pastor. I know this. Holy Spirit, you promised to give us the words. <laughs> this is the time, okay? And so I, I, I created a very short little outline just to try to get them to think about a few things and, and, and try to move the focus on to maybe just for a moment thinking there's a possibility that, you know, yes, there is a God and the things that you been, are being taught or have never been taught are maybe wrong or ooh, this could be a surprise. And it was good. There was 34 in the room, I believe. There was pretty much half and half, male and female. And it went reasonably well, to be honest with you. But So it went to the Q&A. And there were a few people asking about some of the things I said, which was great. But then this one young lady put her hand up. And she said, uh, this is how I wrote it to the best of my uh, memory. She said this. Um, and it was the reason why she could not believe in the God of the Bible. Okay? Just so you understand the context. She said, I am a feminist. And I'm like, Holy Spirit. (laughs) And when I read the Bible, all I see is male, man, men. God is male. Jesus is male. The problem with the Bible is that it promotes, here it is, here's the word, patriarchy. So I'm standing there, honestly, and, and I'm like, like, and the way she said it, it was like a dirty word, right? It was like, it was a bad word. And I'm like, and, and I, listen, I wasn't born yesterday. I've been studying culture and psychology for 40 years in my business life and so on. And I'm like, okay, I know where this is coming from, but I'm at the same time going, Holy Spirit, help. Like, what do you say? What's the response to that? It's kind of like, boom, go ahead, big guy. You know, answer that. And so, of course, I prayed. Here's what I believe the Holy Spirit told me to do at that time, and I did it. I raised my hand, and I said, okay, I have a question for all of you in the room. Um, Let me just ask you this. How many of you have had, do have, or know of a man, a father, who faithfully has and still does love his wife, loves his children, including you? who is the kind of father who would lay down his own life for his wife, for his kids, for his country for that matter. These just came out of my mouth. Who sees himself, despite the fact that your mom might have her own career of her own, sees himself as the family's provider and protector. And I held my hand up and I'm going, please, you know what? At least half of the young ladies in the room put their hands up. A few of the young men started to sheepishly go, oh, okay. And then the young lady put the, her pen down on her paper. And I honestly think she wanted to raise her hand, but... And so to prevent it getting to a point where maybe she would have felt embarrassed, I just simply said, that's a good patriarch. That's patriarchy. Why in the world would we want to see that go away? I think there were quite a few young women in that room encouraged. I hope so. I hope you are too. Because the reality is we need to to see this for what it's supposed to be. Because you know what? It's about the gospel. In my research for today, I, uh, I was searching everywhere for 
various ways to try to explain this today. And I, I actually found this amazing book. The book is called The Epic of Eden, A Christian Entry into the Old Testament. It's written by a woman whose name is Sandra Richter. She's a PhD. She's the Robert H. Gundry, Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies of the Old Testament at Westmount Bible College. I'm going to read a long excerpt from her book because I can't explain it any better than she did. She's a PhD. I kind of respect her. Uh, but what she said is beautiful. So I'd, please hear this in light of the gospel, in light of how God wants to reveal himself as our good, better, best, perfect patriarch. She says this, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of a patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who had been driven to the margins of society by poverty, who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had no defense, who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security with the kinship circle. This was a patriarch's responsibility. This was the safety net of Israel's society. And this is the backdrop of the epic of Eden in which we New Testament believers find ourselves. And then she asks this question. Can you hear the metaphor of Scripture? I love that. She goes on. Yahweh, God, is presenting himself as the patriarch of the clan who has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Not only has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his household to accomplish his intent, his firstborn son. His goal? To restore the lost family members to the, look at this, this is the Hebrew words, bet ab. Hebrew, bet ab, abba, the Aramaic, literally means father's household, so that where he is, they may be also. This is why when we speak of each other as brothers and sisters, why we know God is father, why we call ourselves the household of faith. She concludes with these words, God is beyond human gender. This we know. He's spirit. Our relationship to him beyond blood, but the tale of redemptive history comes to us in the language of a patriarchal society. Our father God is buying back his lost children by sending his eldest son, his heir, to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. So that we, alienated, might be adopted as sons and daughters and share forever in the inheritance of this firstborn of all creation. This is the ark of the Bible. This is critical and important. And so I tell you this today, and I share this with you today, and I'm not finished, but it's for two reasons. It's one, so that you and I, men and women, can approach our heavenly Father appropriately and safely with trust. And at the same time, when we encounter in this world and culture things that are not true about the Bible, about how the Bible presents things, we might be able to language it in such a way that we can help people 
understand who their heavenly Father is. I'm not suggesting you run out tomorrow and start talking to people about patriarchy, please. This is for us. So in the Old Testament, God rose up, look at this, 12 patriarchs to lead the 12 tribes of Israel. It was certainly symbolic when Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles, but that's not the end of it. We get to the book of Revelation, we get to the end, we get to when the new Jerusalem and and the new heaven are being instituted, when this is all said and done, and it's recorded. Jesus telling John what to write, what he sees, and we see this. John says, well, when it comes to the new Jerusalem, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and they will be there for eternity. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and then finally, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so again, I I hope by looking at this today, we can see, you can see, that our Father has marked out throughout history and for eternity His name. His name. And so when we come back to that verse, when Luke says, records Jesus, pardon me, saying, Father, hallowed be your name. That word literally means sacred, most holy, to be preserved, to be precious above all other names. We sang songs about that this morning. And so how do we do that? How how do we hallow his name? We've been doing that this morning in this message by making sure we understand that he chooses to be known as and reveals himself as our father, as our patriarch. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so let me conclude with a couple of illustrations and stories. We were at small group this past week, Tuesday night. I, of course, was, we were having a conversation, and my phone uh, buzzed, and so I, of course, I pulled it out. You know, I'm, I'm addicted. And it was a text from our son, Jonathan, who's in Saskatchewan, um, uh, working for the uh, university, the college that he graduated from last year. And the simple text just simply said, Hey, Dad, how you doing? Just wondering if you had a few minutes so I could talk to you about a few things and get your opinion on those few things. <laughs> Warms a father's heart, you know. <laughs> He's 23 years of age. And, and first of all, A, for, for your son to text you and say, I'd like to talk to you, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Because some don't text you very often, right? But also that, that, that he still wants you to speak into his life. That's, I got to tell you. As I'm thinking about my relationship with my heavenly father and this, and I'm thinking like, son, and I texted him back and I said, I, I'm at small group right now, but listen, when I get home tonight or tomorrow morning, son, I'd love to. I can't wait to. Are you kidding me? I heard an illustration uh, several years ago. I had to look it up again by one of my favorite pastors. You all know his name, Tim Keller. Um, 
he, he makes a, a, this wonderful illustration and gave this wonderful illustration. It was really, really about, not so much about prayer to our Heavenly Father, but about our relationship to God and how we should see it and how, frankly, sometimes we see it and it shouldn't be that way, but even Christians, but non-Christians, but even Christians might see it this way. And he, he refers to that, that relationship as either a landlord to tenant which is a contractual relationship or a covenantal relationship, pardon me, which is a father to a son or daughter. And the way he puts it is this way. In the landlord-tenant relationship, it's pretty simple. You get to live in the landlord's house as long as you obey the rules, right? You know, like you pay your rent, you look after the place, you don't, you know, put holes in the walls, you know, they get to inspect it once in a while. And as long as you do your part... It's all good. Well, the landlord also has certain things that the landlord has to provide, right? You know, he's, he's got to you know, provide for the main areas of the house, like the roof, the water, the heating, the, the mechanisms. They've all got to work. You know, all of the appliances have got to work. So there's something on the landlord and there's something on the tenant in those relationships. But this is, this is let's be clear, this is a contractual relationship where each party must do their part. And even in this type of relationship, the landlord... And, and tenants sometimes can actually get to know each other and maybe even become friends until someone doesn't live up to their part of the bargain, right? And then landlords typically go, oh, why did I ever become their friend? And vice versa. Those kind of relationships are very, very difficult. So this is the type of relationship that lets us be sure we understand this. It's contractual. It's conditional. It's dependent on what you have to offer or what you do, right? On the other hand, there is this relationship when you're living in your parents' home. And I'm telling, I'm talking about living in your parents' home, not when you're 34, okay? How's it different? Well, it's unconditional, isn't it? I mean, my, my son, we did talk the next day, and he, the truth is, he didn't ask me for money, which is a good thing. But, but, but if he had, you know, our, our response typically would be, you know, if we've got it and it's for something he really needs, no-brainer. How much do you need, son? And if we don't have it and it's for something he really needs, we'll find it. We'll help you get it. Why? It's our son, our daughter. It's what we do. Are there times when we're asked to give or to help with something and we don't think that is very good for them? Many times. Anyone a parent here? Okay, yeah. So what do we do? Well, if we love them, right? It's different. It's different. If you are, when it's different in this relationship because it's unconditional. It's because of who you are. You are a son or a daughter, and here's how that changes. Not only this relationship, but the one you have with your heavenly Father. In the in the language, in the paradigm, pardon me, of the landlord tenant. In that contractual relationship, it's this: if you perform, you will be accepted. If you perform, you can stay in this house. Right. The family of God relationship says this. You're fully accepted. Now, what would you like to do around the house? <laughs> Actually, that comes from you. I'm so fully accepted. Dad, is there anything I can do? Can I chop some firewood for you? Yes, son. Thank you. 
That's awesome. Thanks for offering. Right? That's that relationship. That's different. So the Christian, the adopted son or daughter, asks this, God, be my father. Be my dad. I know I don't deserve to be in your home or to be your son or your daughter based on anything that I have done, but solely on the ransom that has been paid by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the covenantal relationship. That's the father-son-daughter-family relationship. It's not the same in the contractual. So I think that changes everything, doesn't it? Does that not change our, our, our ability, our freedom to go to our Heavenly Father with anything? I tell my sons, I tell every young man that I disciple, I don't care, whatever you do, no matter how bad it is, just be honest with me. Because here's the truth, I will never not love you. I might be angry with you. I might tell you off. <laughs> but I will never stop loving you. I cannot. I will not. So let me make one simple suggestion for you today. As you go home, having heard this, and, and you want to see your prayer life with your Heavenly Father become what it should be, may I suggest you try this. How about just opening up your prayer with this? Hey, Dad, I'm home. Got a few minutes to talk? I'm not looking for money, by the way. I've got a lot of things going on. You know what they are. You probably could guess. But I would really, really appreciate your input and your help. Pray with me, would you?